you know the hole in the ozone layer y'all y'all remember that old thing from the 90s it still exists and it's directly above australia mm-hmm. <laughs> and um so that's that's why we have like like the uv index here is like set to extreme all the time it's like always extreme like crank to like a, a, a 10 out of 10 scale it's set to 11 you know like you burn mm-hmm. so easy here because there's just no ozone to protect you but um because of that there's like a huge culture of sunscreen and like being sun safe and wearing sun safe clothing and hats and and all of that kind of stuff um the like i think it was in i think it was like the 90s or, or early 2000s the public health campaign about wearing sunscreen was so super effective that they had to run a a different public health campaign about the the necessity of vitamin D because people were wearing sunscreen so much and so effectively that they were not soaking up vitamin D from the from the sunlight that they actually that you need uh, is a vital (laughs) (laughs) yeah and so they had to like they were like fuck we were too successful in getting people to wear sunscreen now we need to tell them it's okay to soak up a little sun (laughs) that was a treat god damn Meanwhile, here in the USA, um, the sunscreen we do get is shit. It's absolute fucking shit. I learned this recently, too. When I was at that conference in Hawaii, I was talking to a um, a friend of mine who, uh, shout out Jenny Dick Bryan, who's at um, Arizona State University. I like faculty there. I knew her when I was doing grad school. She's got a whole research project on sunscreen um that she's doing and, and that's where i learned i was that like the sunscreen in the u.s like just doesn't work it's fucking no. shit like they haven't made any changes to the formula for sunscreen in like 20 or 30 years so like all of the the amazing sunscreen that like some of the best sunscreen in the world comes from either australia or south korea apparently Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. all of it is because it's like within the last 10 or 15 years these all these like innovations in sunscreen technology that apparently none of them have um been integrated into american sunscreen in part she was telling me because like the uh the fda has not up updated the list of acceptable ingredients in sunscreen for like 20 or 30 years or something like that so yeah but i had no idea that actually a lot of sunscreen that you buy in the u.s just it it, it's just it's just lies to you it just doesn't actually do anything that's good oh god bless the usa man where we can where we can put the chemicals in our bodies when we eat the food but not on our face so i don't get sunburned that would be dangerous you wouldn't want that to happen. They rather they rather us mainline the plastics instead of sublingually absorb them. <laughs> I mean, I think also it is kind of fun that uh, kind of fun how bad you know our FDA is at testing, right? Partly because it's underfunded, partly because it's understaffed, and partly because there's been like a really successful campaign to also keep things permanently that way and convince people ah, 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 we don't need to test or develop testing regimes that, you know, anticipate what these uh, various chemical byproducts do or what their interactions would be at various points in a food pyramid, right? Or in a water table, right? We just, you know, it's just vibes. We just need to vibe it out more or less and everything will be okay. Just don't eat paste or glue and don't eat the sunscreen 
um, and you'll be fine. And may, may, maybe, maybe, um, old Balaji Srinivasan had it right when he wanted, when he's saying, you know, he, when he's on that abolish the FDA campaign. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you yeah, remember only, that? Only, yeah. He, he was like lobbying to become the head of FDA under Trump so that he could, uh, like to abolish it from the inside. Yeah, one of the best ways to be to be a fifth columnist is to say I am going to be a fifth columnist. <laughs> <laughs> That's all that always works, my brother. <laughs> I mean, the thing is is that it actually did work for a number of Trump's appointments to yeah. uh, to head agency. They were like, <laughs> I promise you I will be a fifth columnist and then they weren't a fifth columnist enough. And so, so, so Trump and all and his supporters were like, what "The fuck? Why? Why did we put you in this appointment if we still have an EPA? Why did we put you in this appointment if we still have a Department of Education?" Right. <laughs> so, what you, what you need to do is you need to come with like a a resume of fifth column activities to show that you have the experience and expertise needed to be an effective fifth fifth columnist. It's not enough to be an accelerationist. Ed. You got to be an, an effective accelerationist. You got to hustle for it. What are some What are some <laughs> highlights on that CV? Then, what would be some you know like you know for a typical neoliberal, it's like a stop at like McKinsey for a little bit. Nah, nah, that that don't work. That don't work because those are people who are uh, invested in maintaining the status quo, just in such a way that it like doesn't work. Right. If you want a fifth columnist, you need someone with a track record of, of destruction in their wake. And I think Pelagi's our man, you know, he could have pointed to his track record of like all the industries that he has, uh, uh, invested in and then, uh, were, were evaporated, um, soon after his investments, all the money, that he destroyed, right? Like he's got this wake of destruction in his pathway. Like he just, just a, just a track record of, of failures of, of destroying wealth, destroying um, people's dreams and hopes, their ideas. Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I, he could have done more. He could have hustled harder. <laughs> and then maybe, then maybe market pressures would mean we have effective sunscreen. I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> Hustle hard. That's that's, <laughs> that's the ultimate lesson here. Yeah. 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 friends and enemies it's episode 302 of this machine kills i'm jathan joined by ed and producer jeremy as usual and and thank thank god for that uh, <laughs> um yeah it, it's it you know i think for this episode we go and get to we're going to get to an essay that we mentioned very briefly at the very end of the last free episode um, and now, now I think it's time to to devote the the time it's it's due to to st- uh, discussing 
this new this new essay by Emily Gorzinski um, that she posted on her on her website. Again, found it through the Discord. Um, shout out to Oscar on the Discord who posted it. Uh, it's a it's a nice long just just meaty juicy episode uh, uh, essay rather. Um, damn, damn near nine thousand words. But once I started reading it, it it picks up. It's good. Like it has it has some good flow to it. It's it's spitting um, and it, it's really fucking good. Uh, kind of at once a history of the development of AI. Like it gives this really really in depth, um, really clear and and very useful kind of history of the development of AI going back to you know the the nineteen forties, uh, the nineteen fifties, right. Um, especially the kind of 1950s right after the Second World War. So in that immediate post-war era is when a lot of these kind of theories of computation, um, a lot of resources were being invested into um, creating new um, computer technologies, creating computer science as this kind of field and discipline um, into trying to achieve what were from the very outset of the modern computer um, industry, these, these hopes and dreams of creating God, you know? And I think like, you know, the artificial intelligence is not a new idea. It was really motivating all the way back in the fifties, the creation and a lot of the work um, around uh, computation technologies around computer science. Um, and this essay by Emily Gorzinski is titled Making God. And in laying out this history, she draws really direct and really compelling um, analogs to the, 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 the religion of technology, as David Noble put it in the title of one of his books on the, um, the historian David Noble. Um, but yeah, like... This this essay is we'll, we'll I think we'll walk through it we'll discuss it it's hitting on a lot of stuff that really resonates with TMK um, and and resonates with a lot of the things that we've been talking about especially in our own analysis our own discussions of the kind of contemporary cults around AI right whether it's effective accelerationism which is so clearly. Uh, kind of religious cult. We, you know, in our episode on effective accelerationism, we talked about it in direct connection to um, its lineage with uh, the singularity, um, which is, of course, also very much trying to, like, quite explicitly linked to these these uh, these evangelical notions of um, of transcendence uh, of of an afterlife of immortality and so on. And this essay um, by Gorzinski makes these connections, but I think does so in like such a deeper way than, than we were even doing in our, in our um, discussions of them. Like she really situates it in this kind of deep history of like um, kind of you know, exegesis of, of the Bible, the kind of theology of revelations, the theology of um, the kind of strange American Christianity and its link to um, kind of, you know, early European Christian cults and so on. Like it, it's a, it's just a fascinating essay that at once gives this 
history of AI that we need. We need to know where like this history of AI really, really well, especially considering the AI industry is so ahistorical. Uh, so not just ahistorical, anti-historical, right? It is, it, it, and, and hyper-revisionist in any kind of history that it tells. And so having this history is always the perfect anecdote for any um, claims around technological determinism or linear progress or anything like that. History is always the best weapon against those, those arguments, about, against those claims. Uh, and, and I think having this kind of really interesting critical framing of it through the lens of religion tells us a lot about the the culture of technology the kind of ideologies the aspirations and motivations um driving a lot of these technologies and especially driving sometimes quite explicitly the people at the very top um, of these technologies and 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 companies and Silicon Valley, right? The people with the most influence, the most power, are often the ones who are the most taken by the most extreme kind of religious mythologies or theologies around AI. So, you know, I, I think that this this is going to give us a, a, a this is going to serve us for a really interesting episode. I think because this this essay is really worth reading if people are, are interested in it. But again, it is it is quite long. It's 9,000 words. And so um, I think there's a lot here for us to discuss, but a lot more for people listening if you know, to dig into even deeper. Um, so we'll, we'll, of course, have a link to that in the description. But I know, Ed, that this really speaks uh, volumes to you and, and your interest. Yeah, you know, I am deeply obsessed with explorations of Silicon Valley's engagement to technology through religious frameworks and lenses. One, also partly because of my own, um, you know, my, I've talked at length on here and other places about my shift from seven day Adventist, uh, new a- to annoying new atheist to a uh, singularitarian, uh, to a normal person, um, to Luddite. Right. And I think, you know, at various points, the thing that I've been constantly fascinated by and interested in is the ways in which people kind of talk about technology, invoke technology, think about technology, reason through technology, imagine technology, accept or resist technologies and, and and the degrees to which all of those can be mapped onto religious experiences and fervor and relationships. And it feels to me very obvious, right? As you've talked about here and as we've been talking about for a while, that when it comes to Silicon Valley's greatest advocates and shills, it's so clearly a sort of religious ecstasy, the religious impulse that's operating here. It's it's not it's not such a it's no it's not so obviously the case that the way although they would insist that the way people talk about tech specifically the way that Silicon Valley wants people to talk to about tech makes any real sense um, or is the natural way to talk about it you know I was rereading you know along along with reading this essay I was rereading a piece I was reading a piece from Evgeny Morozov and Baffler back in 2015 it was called Taming of the Tech Criticism and he talks about how you know, there are 
you know, in the period of technology criticism, this is 2015, where there's no effort, impulse, drive to connect it to a larger emancipatory vision for what role tech should or shouldn't play in various political and social struggles, technology either ends up being, largely ends up being an elaborate um, and complex footnote affirming the status quo. And I think that a lot of the times what you end up having and why I think the religious explanation makes is interesting is, you know, a lot of these people do not actually offer a real transformative alternative politics and social relations with their technology, except in a way that kind of centers the technology more and more in a way that degenerates and, and undermines things that get in the way of the technologies becoming and ascendance and um, development. And that, you know, in one way or another, punishes those who get in the way of it and prioritizes those who speed it along, who pay proper adherence or your know, faith or fealty or reverence to it, so on and so forth. And, you know, these are very general and abstracted forms. But these are the things that like make me interested in and signal that like, hey, maybe there is something more to look at in how tech optimists, how a lot of technologists, how a lot of tech advocates, techno solutionists, uh, tech financiers, tech entrepreneurs, tech founders think about technology, right? This bundle of goods and services and ideas and values that are always ready to be served and deployed in a way that just doesn't, that does more so perpetuates the thing and expands the thing and makes everyone more amenable to the thing because that will allow us to figure out how to solve politics and social relations and culture. And in fact, the problems that emerge from those are that they're not properly mediated by technology. You know, they're not properly mediated by the market. They're not properly mediated by private capital. And and this piece, I think, does a really great job in kind of pointing us in this direction where, you know, the ways in which artificial intelligence, which, you know, as we've talked about, doesn't even really exist, but the way that algorithmic governance and overseers, the way that digital systems and platforms, the way that, you know, the things we call technology, technological products, technological platforms, technological services are talked about and advanced resembles the religious undertones and fervor of manifest destiny of these sort of millenarian cults of this desire to either of these like sometimes contradictory, sometimes parallel desires to realize a heaven on earth or to imbue life with meaning or to save people or to redeem and vindicate humanity, or to reshape humanity in a form that's more divine, or to align it with some nature, or to purge it of its nature, right? And that all, a lot of these impulses are ultimately religious ones, and we, when we lose that a lot of the time, because when we talk about technology, one, you know, we again, we talk about it on the terms of Silicon Valley, because we don't you know, most of the public discourse does not have its own alternative vision. It's just arguing with Silicon Valley's vision and arguing, okay, like, do we have smart cars or do we have cars, right? Do we have, you know, 
do we have you know smartphones um or do we have smart sidewalks and smart cameras and all this bullshit right you know very narrow political and social possibilities within those categories what if we don't have cars what if we don't have surveillance systems what if we don't have networked homes you know or homes that are connected to some network that's outside of your home but in the religious impulse, as we'll go through this essay, you know, the emphasis is, and as you know, kind of talked about opening with you know, uh, David Noble, right? It is this, this insistence that technology might represent the logical conclusion of our long and continuous struggle against nature, and that this long and continuous struggle against nature is what demarcates humans from animals, but also the mastery of it is what demarcates Western civilization from the rest. And that the degree to which our technology can help us in that quest and the degree to which it can tap into those religious threads, contradictory and parallel that I talked about, um, are the degrees to which it is being honored and revered and, and amplified. And it is, it's, it's technology that will allow us to take it's, a, it's technology that allowed us to make the world the place that it is a good place. It's technology that will allow us to make the future what it should be a better place. You know, something along those lines, I think. You mentioned millenarianism, uh, and that is like, that is so central, not, you know, to Korzynski's essay, but also like so obviously central, I think, to understanding a lot of what's happening in the world, both in terms of the like politics and uh, technology and its real material consequences now uh, on on people. Like, could you? What what is millenarianism for for listeners who who may not be familiar with this belief system? Yeah, it's it's basically the idea that if we step back and before we go into the Christian form, it's basically the idea that there's a change that's coming, and it might be the emergence of a god. It might be the trans. It might be the emergence of some new way of thinking. Some belief system, a political system, you know, or, or or a new type of way of living that will signal the end times. Not just like a like a revolution, not just like a transformation, but like the end times that will then give way to uh, bliss, to you know, a utopia of sorts. In Christianity, the millenarianism is basically this idea that you know, once Jesus returns or you know around the time that jesus returns we will have this thousand year period of peace and prosperity and utopia and that the end times the worst times the apocalyptic times are signaling or herald the beginning of that you know um you know the mormons believed in this uh my 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 old faith the uh, seventh day adventist believed in this Right, that we have to expect this sort of idea of an end, a, a, a rapture, a catastrophe that's a, around the corner, and that it will fundamentally transform everything, and that only by that happening, that cataclysm happening, can we have a, the utopia that we have been all waiting for. Right? 
Yeah, and this is like derived from biblical prophecies from the book of Revelation, right? Mm-hmm. This like the second coming of Christ, the kingdom of God on earth that will last a thousand years, but only after the apocalypse, right? Only after the end times, only after the Antichrist walks the earth. Um, it's, it's, it's so, look, it's, it's, it's so baldly like an absurd and, and ridiculous belief, but also, I think people might be shocked at how um, powerful and you and 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 pervasive that belief is. Like, yes, you know, you. So, I mean, I think a perfect example of this because we'll get into this. You know, how all of this. Like, I think it's it's pretty obvious for good Team K listeners how this like manifests in terms of technology, right? Because like, what is all of the like you know, effective accelerationism shit that we've discussed before, except a form of uh, millenarianism, right? A a kind of a a belief in the second coming of Christ, but here Christ is, you know, technology and capital, Um, the techno-capital engine, as uh, Nick Land puts it, right? Like, so like these beliefs are really central, these kind of millenarian beliefs are really central to a lot of, not only the hardline techno utopianism, but also just a lot of the uh, um, pretty common like techno optimism or whatever that that pervades throughout Silicon Valley. But I think a really uh, uh, another good example of this to kind of pull it um, how to to show how like millenarianism is still so is, is like such a a contemporarily powerful ideology or belief system. It's not just um, something held by like fringe, you know, Christian sects, for example. One of the reasons why there's so much Christian Zionism, especially in the U.S., you know, because like Christ, like evangelicals love Israel, you know, which is weird because also a lot of these same evangelicals that love Israel are also people who have said uh, really positive things about the Holocaust, which seems like a contradiction, right? How can you say, you know, how can you, as some of the the leading evangelical mega preachers have said that, you know. Um, that the Holocaust was uh, ordained by God, and then, but how can you then be like super pro, like the Israel and a ultra Zionist? For them, for Christ, for Christian evangelicals, which we should say is a ruling um, theology in in America and a uniquely American theology at that. Um, for Christian evangelicals. It, the the reason why Israel is is to be celebrated is because Israel um, uh, heralds the end times, right? Like you need the existence of the you need the Jews in Israel, you need the existence of Israel to be there for the second coming of Christ, right? Like it's one of their prophecies. Again, it's that book of Revelations. Like one of their biblical prophecies depends upon the existence of a strong ethno-national or ethno-state in Israel um, as a way to herald the apocalypse, right? Like so their their belief in it's it, it gets it starts getting into some real strange evangelical theology, but there's a, a strong strain of it that the belief that that the Holocaust was ordained by God is because um, the ho- the Holocaust was a necessary precondition for the Jews to then create 
Israel, right? And so for them, they're like, it's all just the steps in God's plan. Like, how could, you know, the, how could something as atrocious as the Holocaust happen? Well, it's all part of God's plan that you can't understand. And that God's plan is constantly, is, is, is leading to the eschaton, right? Like literally the end times. It's, it's an eschatological causal chain um, that you may not understand, but we understand it. And we understand that it's leading to the second coming of Christ and then the, the, the kingdom of God on earth after um, the rapture, after the apocalypse after all the non-believers uh are perished right like it that (laughs) that is an underlying belief system which is why like america is so pro-israel you know i don't think a lot of people in government maybe explicitly believe that but the people advising them and the people advising the people advising them do believe that and they are pushing that belief through the policies that are now leading to what we are ha- you know witnessing now with the genocide in Gaza right like it's 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 that it is wild to understand that something like actual uh you know genocide in Gaza can in part be explained through this millenarian belief system that influences um, policy and ideology um, in uh, in regards to uh, America and Israel. F- fucking nuts that we live in a society where that is the case. <laughs> Absolutely fucking nuts. It's 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 just it's like it's such a crazy belief that structures a lot of the culture that bleeds into a lot of. And mixes with a lot of other religious threads that are already present in technology and the way that people think about technology and the way that people use technology in relation to the state, in relation to state planning, in relation to military, in relation to social engineering, relation to eugenics, right? And and so I think that there's also another, you know, and as, as we'll talk about later, like another use of having this um, framework, this religious framework is that, you know, um, it also allows us to talk about the reactionary elements of it and the right-wing elements of it without simply calling it fascist. I mean, a lot of these guys are fascists, you know, you know, a lot of these guys, you know, when a hit dog, ho- you know, hit dogs holler. So a lot of these motherfuckers are ghouls, the highest order, but there are also more common threads animating a lot of them because not all of them are fascists, right? But all of them do draw from this well of and this muck, but mixed with religious, um, religious overtones, this weird historical uh, anomalies, and so on and so forth, right? I want to read this section pretty early on from um, the piece that I think also. Uh, goes on to kind of meld some of these questions of religion and, and and the technical expertise, right? There was no doubt we could hold back the fury of a mighty river or contain the spark of creation. There remained only one unanswered question to our power over nature. Could man create life? The question stayed for decades in the realm of theology and science fiction until after the Second World War. War showed us that we could bottle the might of God and use it for apocalyptic death, but it was the twin discoveries in the early 1950s of the theory of computation and the theory, uh, or 
the theory of computation and the double helix structure of DNA that gave us a path to seriously consider the genesis of life. Just a few years prior to the discovery of the structure of DNA, the mathematician John von Neumann began exploring cellular automata as the abstract foundations of the building blocks of life, the so-called universal constructor. DNA's role in carrying information across cellular division only reinforced the faith in this idea, a faith which has carried forward even to the modern era and culminated in the core ideas found in Stefan Wolfram's A New Kind of Science, his much-anticipated magnum opus. Unfortunately, the mathematics were beyond von Neumann's reach 70 years ago, as they were to Wolfram 20 years ago, too. They remain elusive, and despite the tantalizing promise, cellular automata have failed to produce much by the way of meaningful scientific, mathematical, or technological advancement. But it wasn't the success of the theory that became infectious. It was its allure. Buoyed boy, by the impact of computing power, the cracking the Enigma code, the splitting of the atom, and the unlocking of the cell's mysteries, great thinkers began to revisit the question of artificial life. It was easy to convince the military to invest in the creation of technology that could think and act on its own accord. Fresh from the devastation and horrors of the war and an afterglow of Trinity, generals and politicians alike began to fear the totality of the next war. The U.S. Department saw promise in the technology and began investing money in early AI development. Early, AI, early efforts in AI research predated microcomputing technology and focused less on general AI and more machine understanding for limited context. In the early 1970s, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, funded speech understanding research, uh, an effort which attempted to understand natural language to extract information about U.S., Soviet, and British fleets. After five years of funding, the project failed to meet its goals. But this project mirrored earlier attempts at machine translation and early neural efforts called perceptrons, right? And so here we kind of just, I think she's kind of, you know, quickly weaving together. Look, okay, so there are these, you know, uh, running thread in the American history, at least, right? Where technology allowed us to conquer the continent. It was fueling manifest destiny, right? That this idea that America was God's fortress, not Europe, but America. We had a divine mandate to spread from sea to shining sea. We had a divine mandate to create a new Rome in San Francisco, as they tried to do and failed. We have a divine mandate, right, to you know pop, you know populate this planet with people who. Are influenced by or come from the heritage of or share the ideas of the people in god's fortress right and that when you walk this earth you see it's god's country you walk this this uh continent you see it's god's country there are virgin landscapes you know that we're taking you know that were tended by indigenous americans um but they don't look like the European continent, which has gone through years and years and years and years and years of extraction and warfare and exploitation that have left, um, you know, God's forest and land devastated, right? And so you come here to this country and you conquer it and you, and you, you colonize it with the help of technology. It is technology that helps you connect this massive expanse. It's technology that helps you pull the, the wealth out of the ground. It's technology that helps you fill 
people uh, across every inch of the land, control the rivers, uh, push back the fires, erect massive cities, direct the flow of trade, right? Put electricity and power and communication across of the across the continent, right? You can see very early on this sort of commingling of like, okay, well, it's you know manifest destiny, God, our destiny imbued by God, technology being the engine that drives us through and gives us the dominion. It's it's art, it's science, it's capital, it's magic, right? Technology is able to do all of that, and and without it, we would be not, nowhere, right? And so, you know there becomes this idea of technology as having cracked open that or uh, a, a crack or cracked open a seam for the divine element, the divine spirit of humanity to pour through into nature and reshape it in, the, in our own image. Right. And as we gain control over the land and sea and, you know, and the air, as we gain control over all the creatures, as we gain control over, uh, you know, very forces of, of nature itself, um, of course, then we're going to look towards creating life, towards emulating life, right? And the earliest efforts, even though they have, we all under we all understand that the earliest efforts at, and the earliest investments made by uh, the United States military in technology have sufficiently shaped technology in a direction that's militaristic and surveillance oriented. And, and at the same time, that religious impulse is still there that has been running through the history of this country, right? This idea that technology exists as an extension of man to help remake the world in his image as part of this divine sort of process of becoming and transcending that is God-given and God-driven and God, you know, uh, God-like almost, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 and 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 you know, in that history as well, I think it's really telling that, like, you know, the first AI winter really happened between you know in the seventies and eighties, right? You know, with the the publication of the the famous Light Hill report in the uh, in nineteen seventy three, which basically just uh, absolutely eviscerated and admonished the current state of the field of, uh, of AI research for, um, failing, failing to, to make, uh, inroads, failing to make advancements, failing to live, live up to any of the claims or predictions, um, about the results of AI research that had been widely publicized. Um, and, you know, and, and it, you know, it called it uh, an embarrassment, and a lamentable failure of such inflated predictions. Um, it was a devastating report by the British government um, that completely killed AI research for 20 years. Like it's what led to the AI winter that everybody is now so afraid will like the second winter will come. You know, it ain't going to be the second coming to Christ. It's going to be the second winter uh, is coming um, if people can't get their act together, right? But I think it's really telling, and, and Gorzinski really draws this connection here as well, that the uh, excitement around AI really start picking up again in the 90s, right? Um, and and I'll, I'll, what, you know, what happened in 89, of course, well, you know, the U.S. 
beat the godless Soviets. It's one and only uh, competitor on the geopolitical sphere, right? And so uh, that that was further evidence um, that that America was God's chosen country. You know that America was going to be the um, you know the the homeland uh, for 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 the second coming i mean it, it is the mormon faith as well right that like um <laughs> that uh, jesus was actually american this whole time we didn't even know it well they knew they knew because they were tablets had the tablets uh <laughs> but like that kind of belief really um started to pick up steam especially after the after the collapse of the soviet unions which you know a lot of the 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 Cold War was also a war of religion, right? The Soviets were atheist and America was Christian or Judeo-Christian. Um, and so the defeat of the Soviets showed that, you know, America was God's country. Um, and through that as well, uh, as Gorzinski writes, by the 1990s, artificial intelligence research had failed to meet any of its stated goals, but this lack of success did not impede the field from reifying Christian dominionism and reshaping themselves in the messiah messianic tradition. So it is the 90s as well where we start picking up steam with with so-called AI evangelists starting to bang the drum again, starting to get some, you know, build up attention, attract funding and investment and hype and publicity around AI is back, baby. And, and it's better than ever, right? Like the, the winter is done. Spring is spring has sprung. Uh, and, um, uh, Gorzinski in particular points to uh, a book by this AI evangelist Earl Cox, who authored a book in the 90s called Beyond Humanity, Cyber Revolution and Future Mind, in which he proposes a lot of ideas that sound very familiar, right? Stuff like, quote, humans may be able to transfer their minds into new cyber systems. And that we will, quote, download our minds into vessels created by our machine children and with them explore the universe freed from our frail biological form. A lot of this sounds familiar because it's the exact ideas that Kurzweil um, brought to the mainstream a decade later in The Singularity is Near, right? And, and that, and, you know, but these ideas were, <laughs> it's interesting to, to note that like these ideas were not original to Kurzweil, right? He was just taking ideas and repackaging them um, and trying to, you know, perhaps push them further with these like um, absurd predictions that, that all of this is going to happen and it's going to happen by the 2040s, um, as Kurzweil said, right? Which is also well within the tradition of the kind of biblical prophecy making, right? That like you, it, you if you're going to tell people the end is nigh, it's really powerful and you can get people to really circle around you if you give them a date, on which the end is nine. Send them a, a, a Google calendar invite, you know, about when the end is coming and that, and that they'll, uh, they'll rally around you even more. And so this kind of, you know, futurist tradition of setting um, dates for when some technology or some social change is going to happen. Once again, you know, linked to lifted from 
uh, a biblical tradition, a prophetic tradition of doing the same exact thing in this kind of millenarian belief system and the in the idea of Christian dominionism, right? And so I think you know Gorzinski is really compellingly drawing these con- uh, connections here that you know the AI winter seventies and eighties because of the complete lack of ability to make any um, inroads to uh, make good on any promises or predictions, um, you know, these embarrassing failures of AI research um, really chilled people out on it. And then boom, Soviet Union collapses, our atheist enemy is dead. Um, you know, God, God has risen again in America, um, and we know it to be true. And also, by the way, uh, AI is uh, the technology that's going to bring us closer to God, right? And so you get this like resurgence in the '90s again of of both a um, uh, of an American evangelicism and a like um, cyber theology, both again kind of gaining in uh, massive popularity, becoming much more mainstream, and through that getting a lot more attention, a lot more hype, a lot more investment, a lot more resources, a lot more funding, right? Right. That like, again, to quote from Gorzinski, uh, it's worth pointing out that these extreme claims are not being promoted by the ignorant and the conspiratorially minded. Von Neumann was one of the greatest mathematicians of his time. Cox was an expert in fuzzy logic. Kurzweil studied at MIT. And many of these thinkers were funded by military-backed scientific research initiatives. Despite this pedigree, there is little meaningful science backing these claims. If anything, the repeated historical failures of AI to provide the promised society-altering changes has only led to a redoubling of faith-based prognostication. Each AI winter is followed by the rejection of rational fundamentalism in favor of a quasi-religious kind. We see this all the time in the um, the the millenarian um, sects and the the, the theological cults. Um, is that once once a prediction is shown to be wrong, people don't reject it. They often double down. They double down on the next prediction. They double down on their faith, right? Because rejecting it, doing the empiricist move or the rationalist move of rejecting something once it's proven to be wrong is uh, is very tough when you have wrapped your whole psychology, your whole culture, your whole sense of self and meaning into this belief. It is much easier to double down on it rather than um, reject it from yourself, whether that is a uh, a Christian cult or a technological cult, we see the exact same thing happening here. Right, right, and 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 so it's like, okay, what's going on now? You know, where where are the threads that kind of race forward in this kind of writing? And I think Emily's as we continue on. You know, the essay here kind of charges along, making a you know this pretty convincing case that by the time we enter the 2000s, right, these elements are kind of deeply baked into the background of American consciousness. Uh, The DNA of technological theory and theology, as well as uh, the policy planners of the United States in the wake of the fall of the Soviet Union, 
and then again with the uh, with nine eleven, right? And so you have a resurgence of an explicit sort of Christian fundamentalism, the ascendance of an industry and a mode of thinking, techno techno capitalism that is interlinked and you know inscribed with some of this Christian fundamentalism. Um, and a lot of technologies that were funded, created, designed, or imagined as ways to, um, as as weird extensions, novel extensions of these these theological impulses. We're going to put our minds into vessels, and our machine children will explore the universe and make new planets and be God and have their own genesis. Blah 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 blah. Right, and so this kind of gets us to the second section, you know, of the essay where, you know, Emily's kind of looking, trying to say, okay, well, there are some larger confounding issues that emerge now, right? All of these pieces are in play, but the money spigot starts to turn off, right? Uh, The end of the Cold War, plan administration, budget plans, they start to pull back some of the endless sea of money that was thrown at various moonshot and AI projects. Computational power is still pretty expensive. Uh, massive computational projects like supercomputers are being built and tasked largely to things that are not science fiction projects, like what would happen in nuclear uh, apocalypse? You know, Can we predict what the weather is going to look like? What are subs- what's going on at the subatomic level, right? Um, we still have the building blocks of some of the more ubiquitous technological innovations in works. You know, Emily writes about how algorithmic development was, quote, progressing. Oh, quote, what algorithmic development was progressing was living in more niche fields, like control systems research, a field which carefully distance its robotic work from sci-fi notions of intelligent terminators taking over the world. By 2008, when I began working with neural networks, they were merely niche tools to solve specific technical problems, not lofty approaches intending to create artificial general intelligence. AI fringe, AI research was back at the fringe, neural networks were a failed promise. And so this gets us to a common sort of divergent or a common point in which people talk about as the, as a shift, right? It's in 2012 where neural networks are being worked with again, right? Uh, so convolutional neural networks are being worked with. And as Emily writes, they're being integrated into this new field of GPU based com- uh, computation. And as a result, right, you know, well initially, right, they're constructed to, you know, help along uh, graphical rendering for video games, for special effects, for physical uh, recreations, right? Um, And eventually, you know, we realize that they have a huge capacity to be used in parallel. And the parallel processing power, quote, gives them an advantage in computationally intensive work like neural networking instead of CPUs, which are designed for running application workloads for personal computers. And so the team starts taking GPUs, uh, GPU-based computing, 
to parallel processing, integrates the ConvNet um, approach, and uses it to start experimenting with computer vision. Right? You might remember vaguely a lot of excitement over the years, past few decades, depending on how old you are, over um, over computer vision um, in, in various iterations and waves. But as as I think Meredith Whitaker has talked about in her paper, her paper about you know the capture of computational resources, also in an, she's also talked about this episode of the Dig that I was on with her about. As um, you know, other historians and scholars in this field have talked about, right, unlocking the ability to um, bring more computational power to bear allows you know old ideas and frameworks to be revisited and tried again this time with you know brute force right um and so you know she talks about you know because of existing conditions right uh, computer vision techniques were relying on more conventional machine learning techniques like linear discrimination analysis and so you have convnet which has remarkable results it seems to exceed the human benchmark and now we don't actually need specialized hardware, arcane programming languages. You could just take off-the-shelf hardware, these GPUs, and build up to unlock huge potential for computational power um, and for experimenting with designing and developing um, neural networks at scale. And now, suddenly... You know, AI starts to look promising again. And at the same time, as you know, this kind of makeover of neural networks with the use of GPU computational uh, techniques, we have the industry also having to remake itself, right? You had the dot-com bubble where the assets were deflated. You had the Great Recession where other assets were deflated, right? Now we have a chance to start fucking around and getting maybe some of them figuring out new ways to get the money that uh we needed because the pentagon turned off its spigot right and so here you start to see the integration of the internet and digital systems into more and more of our daily life and you start to see the prominence and ascendance of the technology industry and its products and its goods and its services right you, uh, you know Social media, of course, is the obvious, uh, I guess, prism and way to think about this and look at it. You had it growing in centrality of people's lives to the point where, you know, we remember the uh, Arab Spring and the ways in which people's um, ideas about technology, I think, or the Arab Spring serves as a good w- chance to think about how people's ideas of technology are very easily can be vessels for just other ideas that are working around there uh, because uh, the technology in of itself um, is, is thought of as more of a means to an end, right? That the Arab spring was going to result in the democratization of the middle East because technology is an inherently um, liberalizing force, uh, which is more or less what people would say about markets. Markets are more or less inherently liberalizing force, and when we open up uh, China's economy and integrate it into the WTO, it's going to become a democracy, right? So on and so forth. 
That, that great democratizing force, the WTO. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> right. Um, you know, and, and, and as a result, so you start to see the industry change its centrality in the culture and in the politics and in the public imagination. You also start to see a real change in the uh, ability of researchers and the firms to deploy computational resources, and you see the ascendance or the development, really, the creation of a new field, of a new career, as Emily puts it, data science, right? Now you start to see the beginning of a very, 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 very familiar model. I mean, it's a model that's existed for decades in other domains. You know, one of my favorite examples, big tobacco, uh, big pharma, but this example now tech starts to play in this playbook, right? Where you take academics and you take postdocs and you give them more money than they'll ever fucking make, right? And you say, hey, come work for us. Um, help us build out this new field, generate this new data, build out these new methodologies, build out this new infrastructure, right? Um, you know, she as she puts it, hire fans versed in a form of statistical lugger domain that would materialize money out of the vast collections of data. Right, and she became one of those people as well, too. Right, decade in a decade of experience in machine learning begins chasing money and status in an industry with deep pockets. It was incredibly hard not to succeed. Right, AI movement has its spring. Money is flowing everywhere. Now they have a new field, new products, new goods, new services, which means not only do they just get money in of itself from financiers, but they might even get access to old money from our, our lovely friends and the defense department. Well, not that they you know, might even need it because venture capitalists, um, angel investors, you know, God's very own pastors um, are ready to give fistfuls of money um, to help immunitize Eschaton through these um, artificial intelligence networks or these through the precursors to, you know, what we'd call artificial intelligence systems. How many times we got to say that do not immunitize the Eschaton? <laughs> I mean, that, it was the title of one of the very early episodes of TMK. So this is, this is some well-trod uh, ground for, for TMK. We love talking about the eschatons and the people mm -hmm. who want to amanitize them. Mm -hmm. um, but this, this difference here is really good. Like I love the way that um, uh, Grozinski frames it, right? Where she says data science embraced the prosperity of gospel. Uh, uh, sorry. Data science embraced the prosperity gospel and venture capitalists and angel investors readily handed over wheelbarrows of money. But then she, she goes on to say as well that one of the reasons that, you know, AI has uh AI, the AI movement has reemerged from its slumber um, is not so, you know, they're not eager to make the mistakes of the past, right? Promising these wild things around creating synthet the synthetic genesis of consciousness, as, as she puts it, quote, but rather the manifestation of business value and wealth. Uh, so I, I think there's, that's, this is a really crucial difference here between this, like the original AI, you know, the AI spring that led to an AI winter versus the existing AI spring that we are going through right now, it, that is a big difference where, 
the linking up with capital is is really a big part of it. That prosperity gospel, right? That 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 the idea that you know, hey, the religion of ma- the theology of making God is not in conflict with the theology of making money. You know that that is, they are actually they are linked together. Uh, that is that is the lessons of pros- of the prosperity gospel. That is the lessons that AI has taken on. Um, and you know, of course, then we have people like you know, then we have the the folks at OpenAI that are like, why not both? Why why can't we make why can't we be you know make God and make money at the same time? Why can't we do the synthetic genesis of consciousness while also manifesting business value and wealth? Um, but for the most part, I think a lot of people in Silicon Valley are, are primarily interested in the uh, the the latter, the 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 manifestation of of wealth and the making money. And if you got to make God to make money, then by all means. But making money is the primary here, right? Not not making God. That's a means to an end um, for a lot of these people. It also shows a real difference because, like you know, in the in the 1970s, when the Light Hill Report really helped catalyze this first AI winter, when everyone was like, "Well, this is a all of your predictions have failed." Um, all of all of this is embarrassing. All of the research and resources we've been dumping into this have presented us with nothing, nothing of value, right? When that when that report catalyzed this twenty year AI winter, importantly, there was not a well established uh, venture capital industry at that time. Right, we've talked about the history of venture capital, and and the VC industry really didn't start kicking off until after 1972. Right, there were some policy, some really important policy changes that uh, Jimmy Carter's uh, administration helped make in that time period between like 1969 and 1972. Um, there were a, a few really crucial policy changes that helped catalyze that sparked. The, the exponential growth of the venture capital industry, right? Such as allowing for um, pension funds to invest into venture capital funds, which um, gave influxes of billions and billions and billions of new dollars every year into VC funds that they otherwise didn't have, as well as multiple um, reduction cuts to tap capital gains taxes, which is the lifeblood. Uh, you know, um, VCs live and die by capital gains. And so, uh, my point here is that when that first AI winter sparked off, when it when it, when the winter came, there was not a well developed VC industry around to keep AI alive despite its failures, despite its inability to make good on its promises, despite predicting the second coming of Christ and then getting that prediction wrong, there was not a VC industry there to artificially keep it alive, right? To push it, to pour money into it, to generate hype and publicity and attention, to uh, just, you know, to, to, to put it, put, Put the industry on life support, despite its inability to make good on any of its promises or predictions. And so it died. It went away. It went into uh, hibernation. But now, now I think we're facing up the same thing, where we are seeing a lot of the same kind of dynamics of just 
lots of predictions that are um, that are that are, are are not being borne out, right? A lot of fa- a lot of promises that are not being kept. A lot of a lot of failure. A lot of embarrassment. A lot of debacles and scandals. A lot of overhyping and under delivering, right? But the difference is, you've got a VC industry that's heavily invested financially, psychologically, culturally, theologically into AI. And, and I think, and they are also very aware of the exist that AI winter could come. And so they are actively fighting against a second AI winter coming, right? I think this is a really interesting dynamic here that, that, that makes the kind of like the political economy of AI is very different now than it was 50 years ago. Um, and, and, and that difference, even though there might be a very similar kind of theology at play, um, that political economy is really different now. And I think it makes the, it makes the, the what comes next uh, not, not quite a one-to-one with the previous errors um, that led to an AI winter. It's, it's going to look different because there's, you know, there's, there's different players at hand. It's not just the, you know, it's not just the military supporting this and then the government being like, you haven't given us what we were promised. And so, you know, go away. Um, now it's, now it's capital. Um, that is the primary driver, the primary supporter of this. Again, to go back to, um, Grzynski's really apt, uh, analogy here framing, it's the prosperity gospel, um, that is truly driving uh, data science and AI right now. And I think this also leads us to then, you know, one of the really interesting threads that she weaves in this in this section is trying to pick up on the right wing and the reactionary and the new reaction, whatever the fuck these people call themselves, um, movements with a mold bug, our boy Curtis Yarvin. Right. And the other circles of him. Right. Beginning, of course, with trying to talk about how fascist mystics tech techniques, there's an old relationship there that comes out of, you know, kind of hit on by the by the memoir um, inside the Third Reich from Albert Speer. Right. Talking about those po- the dazzled by the possibilities of tech. I devoted crucial years of my life to serving it, but in the end, my feelings about it are highly skeptical. You know, this idea of tech in that instance in the Nazi regime is that, look, you know, not only is our bloodline purer, but our engineering is purer and better, and our, our war, mean, war machine is more efficient, right? And we even believe, we even have some gobbledygook about Belizebub or whatever the fuck occult elements they, you know, would, you know, invoke from time to time. Fascists have been interested in technology onwards and onwards, right? They've been they've deployed technology, specifically social media uh, platforms and networks. Uh, they've been able to uh, you know leverage it to radicalize, indoctrinate, uh, propagate ideas, right? Specifically, the idea that the world is under um, the attack of um, Jewish forces, as Emily you know puts it, right? Um, but I think also, you know, a really interesting thread here, you know, she kind of overviews a little bit of the history of the alt-right, the reactionaries, the fascists, 
use of online manipulation and their technology. But I think that you know she kind of uses this to to frame the divide or the gulf between what the establishment right wants and what conservatives lurking around want and the reactionaries manipulating online spaces want as fertile ground for the neo-reactionary movement, right? Uh, And instead of being Washington insiders, old money, uh, you know, brother Harlan Crow and, um, (laughs) and um, I don't even know who a fucking Washington insider is. Uh, Some, I can't even think of one on the spot. Uh, instead of <laughs> instead of all of these fucks, so motherfucker like Pat Buchanan, I don't fucking know. And, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That yeah. Is right. Um, you know, instead of instead of these lovely figures, um, what we get are weird little rats like Moldbug, like Curtis Yarvin, right? Who are interested in ideas like techno supremacy, right? That that white male, I mean, usually white male, software engineers are intellectually superior to everyone. And she writes, while neo, whereas neoconservatism played lip service to the idea of an egalitarian society, neo-reactionarianism discarded the idea entirely and advocated for rule by elitism, and in some cases, the return of monarchy. Neo-reactionarianism is frequent, frequently incomprehensible, but its unabashed racism and inherent techno-solutionism showed that there could be a youthful energy in conservative politics. Neoconservatism was a boomer idea sold to boomers, and the back-to-back losses of proven Republican all-stars John McCain and Mitt Romney to Barack Obama, an upstart black man, demonstrated the need for younger blood in the Republican sphere. Now, the neo-reactionaries... Um, you know, were a bit too fucking heady. And so they relied on smiling, you know, pretty faces, good talking heads to try to distill punchable talking heads. <laughs> yes. Like Important. <laughs> yeah. Right. See something, do something. Um, <laughs> if, um, you know, you have these people to try to um, spread uh, more s- nuggets or you know you know sweets and and fruits and you know the softer more digestible elements of this ideology right that pulls people into the fascism now here as she kind of talks about right yarvin is interesting for a bunch of reasons she was interested in yarvin because he appeared at a a programming conference in 2016 and his appearance divided the community right here she writes on one side some believe that politics and technology should stay separated huh on the other those who believe the spaces should be inclusive and the invitation of an alleged racist and techno monarchist betrayed that idea right and so you had alt-right figures screaming about wokeism and social justice warriors um and then you had the other side saying we need to be inclusive and we need to uh, be against the anti-fascist but she wants she hones in on the functional programming community she writes functional programming is a style of writing code that favors purity and abstraction over brute force alexander grothendieck 
once described fellow mathematician Emmy Noether's approach as letting a sea of abstraction submerge and dissolve a problem standing in contrast to contemporaries' hammer and chisel approach. Functional programming seeks the same elegance, where software development through object-oriented code is an exercise in structure and persistence. Functional code feels to the coder like an act of ingenuity, right? It's So, you know, right off the bat, it's heady, it's abstract, um, it requires not necessarily technical experts, but people who are well-versed and able to stick their head into this muck and use it, right? And so it also lends itself to an elitist attitude, especially to fascists and rats like Yarvin, right, who are interested in purity and supremacy and abstraction, right? Um, and from here, you know, she you know, hones in on a, a very interesting drive that also comes at the back end of this, right? It's about this Israeli philosopher, Nathan Rotenstrike, who talks about the relationship between technology and politics and that it's developed along an authoritarian style. And he writes, the technological development as it stands is a function of this intensification of man's authoritarianism, both in relation to nature and in relation to his fellow men. The authoritarian drive in man has become the technological drive. It feeds technology, makes its progress possible, forces countries and nations to invest the best of their manpower, their best minds, and a great deal of their money in the progress of technology. You know, we can start we can start to see some of the pieces really moving into place here, right? We have a technological we have technological development that when it's not driven by militaristic and surveillance surveillance oriented aims, is driven by an authoritarian impulse that excites specifically reactionaries who are, who are opposed to the modern project of egalitarianism, right? And also excites the imaginations of theologically minded folks who want to live forever, who want to transcend their human bodies, who want to make life, who want to live in an artificial nirvana, right? On all of these forces share in them this idea that man, maybe in some in some telling specific men and in some tellings humanity but man by grace of god has dominion over nature not just dominion in, inherent but that is also justified and reified uh, and affirmed through conquest right and that the theocracy the theocratic elements theological you know philosophy and flirtations that connect technology and fascism um, and, and, this, and the supremacist worldview are also thinking about, okay, in what ways can we use technology to not only conquer and affirm the supremacy of man over nature, but of certain men over others, right? And wouldn't it be that we could also affirm that in the creation of life that is purer and supremer and more efficient in one way or another to other forms of life, right? Which then again snakes back to all the other ideas we've been talking about, right? And so we start to see a concrete object emerge where the fascism, the theology, the theocracy, uh, the, you know, the white supremacy, as well as the 
anthro um, anthropocentric uh, anthropocentric viewpoints as well as the anti-egalitarianism and the elitism all start to merge towards the idea that not only should some people rule over others in a purer, cleaner way via tech, but that there is something purer, cleaner waiting for us on the other side of a certain technical barrier, and that we have a duty you know, to meet it and to become it even maybe, or just to make it and be subservient to it because the, a, a law of nature that we can't escape and that we have used to succeed is that um, you know, purer things conquer and rule over less purer things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's this like fascist obsession, obsession with purity and supremacy that we can see in both uh, the you know the the religiosity of fascism and then the the technological uh, drive of of these fascists as well, right? Like, what what's an obsession of purity give you? Uh, it gives you an obsession over uh, things like eugenics, breeding, race science, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's, that's what, a, uh, you know, that's what an obsession over purity gives you. Um, and we see how this manifests in different, different, uh, conditions or different historical moments of fascism, right. With a real, with a real thread, a real Brown thread, a re- you know, a, a, a kind of, um, you know, and what's an obsession with supremacy give you, right? It gives you quotes like, I love how explicit some of these people are too. Like, you, it's all textual. Like, you don't even have to be like, I'm doing like a, a subtextual uh, exegetical a- analysis of them and being like, ah, I, I think I detect elements of fascism. It's like, no, they just come out and say it, you know? Mm-hmm. An obsession of supremacy gives you... Yes, sir. Like- there are Hitler particles in this, uh, in this <laughs> sample. <laughs> Problem? It it gives you things like Palmer Lucky saying on stage at the Web Summit, you know, I think technical supremacy is a prerequisite for moral supremacy, right? Uh, like uh, you know, and 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 then talking about how it is a an obligation of Western culture to uh, enact that supremacy. Through um, fund, you know, through through funding and advancing military and defense technologies, you know, like that's <laughs> it's like the the the, the you know, they, they're so out and proud about these like fascist obsessions with purity and supremacy about drawing the connections themselves between the um, the evangelical theology with the evangelical technology. You know, they 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 just they they do it themselves, um, and it real. I think it takes actually a lot of work to not recognize it, to not see it. You know, it it, it doesn't take work to see it. It takes work to not see it, um, and and I think we. I think it's only recently that a lot of people are, have stopped doing the work of not seeing it, and they're like, damn. This is wild how all, all of a sudden all these people are sounding real fascist all of a sudden. You know, mm-hmm. I was like, well, because it ain't all of a sudden, you know. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's been for a while and it's been for generations. Uh, there's a lineage here. But, um, you know, Gorzinski in the uh, essay, bring like, you know, the next part of the essay goes over um, – how, you know, over crypto and Web3 and really kind of talks about these as 
what she calls a triumph of faith over reason, you know, and 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 as a a really clear way where when the COVID pandemic hit, there was a lot of worry and discussion about another AI winter hitting um, because of the pandemic. And you know, Grzynski talks about again how like crypto actually played a really big role here. Like crypto failed. You know, but it played its part, and its part was to keep the dream alive. You know, long enough through to to be a um, a lifeboat through crisis, um, and, and it it worked. You know, crypto, blockchain, Web three, it got all of the it got the tech sector through the pandemic, and then out on the other side comes where we are now with generative AI. Right, like so, crypto as this kind of like this this um, this life raft. Through a through turbulent waters for you know three or four years, it's it. I think it's the I think it's a really correct way of understanding what happened here. Right, it was staving off the AI winter. It was buying time. That's what the investment into crypto was. All the billions and billions and billions of dollars that were invested, burned, and evaporated into crypto. Those weren't wasted. They were buying time. And, 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 uh, you know, and that, that's what happened there. And, and so, but we've talked a ton about crypto and Web3 and too much for many lifetimes on this goddamn podcast. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> so I, I think we can skip, um, that section. And, you know, we've been going for a while as well, but let's, let's just skip to the final, um, the final section, section three, apotheosis of, of, of Grzynski's essay. Pull some of this home, you know. Um, uh, here's where she's talking about, you know, she's in this history she's been laying out. She's finally gotten us up to the the, the current time period. We're talking about generative AI and stuff like that, you know. Um, again, something we have also been talking incessantly and uh, about on on the podcast now, um, and so we don't. I, I don't think you know we have been going for a while now. I don't think we need to go. Um, super in depth into her analysis, although I do think it is it is good. Um, again, like there's some. This is a nine thousand word essay. There's so much more here that we are kind of breezing over um, in parts, but really trying to get to like the heart of the analysis that she's that she's laying out here, um, and, and you know, draw again, kind of constantly drawing these these analogies between like. Uh, you know the 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 kind of the evangelical theology and the evangelical technology. Um, I think is a good way to put it. And you know, uh, Grozinski, in kind of wrapping us up, says, you know, I texted my good friend Eve Edinger the other night after a particularly frustrating exchange I had with some AI evangelicist. Eve is a brilliant activist who has experienced escaping an evangelical Christian cult has shaped their work. I wondered, quote, are there any tests to check if you're in a cult? Eve responded, quote, can you ask the forbidden questions and not get ostracized? And then she goes on, right? That the, there's, a, uh, there's a joke in the data science world that goes something like this. What's the difference between statistics, machine learning, and AI? 
the size of your marketing budget. It's strange, actually, that we still call it artificial intelligence to this day. AI is a dream from the 40s, mired in the failures of the 60s and 70s. Um, by the late 1980s, despite the previous spectacular failures to materialize any use for artificial intelligence, futurists had moved on to artificial life. Right? And so, again, kind of talking about how this, this idea that, like, you know, that... Uh, these, these, it, it really, it's these failures. It's these, the buzzwords, right? How big is your marketing budget? Tells you if you're working, what you're working on. Is it statistics or is it AI? Um, but like this whole, uh, kind of question that she goes back to, right? Is, you know, can you ask the forbidden questions and not get ostracized? And here she's, she's leading us through some good examples of how this kind of, you know, cult-like inability to ask those questions without being exiled, um, you know, how, how the AI community fails <laughs> that test over and over and over again, right? Um, whether it is, you know, I, I mean, of course, I think the most famous example is, is something like Rocco's Basculus, right? And we see now how, um, you know, that the, uh, that dude is, one of the biggest like AI doomers out there, right? That um, what what is his name? Oh, Eliza Yadowski. That, yeah, yeah, that's that right. Guy? That's right. The Less yeah, wrong. the guy who's in the Harry Potter fan fiction. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. And now you know is one of the biggest AI doomers out there. Um, but again, that's part of like asking the you know you can't ask those questions. Don't ask Rocco's Basculus, or you'll literally be you know locked and banned from the community. He's also you know uh, um, Grzynski's also bringing us through things you know like uh, you know Mark Andreessen's. Manif you know, techno optimist manifesto that we talked about. Um, you know, the effective altruism, long termism, all of that stuff. So much of this is premised on don't ask the forbidden questions, you know, or else you're going to be ostracized from the community. Require you need to have faith and you need to have utmost belief uh, in in the in in the community. Don't question it, right? And that is despite the. Um, self-aggrandizing rationalism and empiricism of this community it is organized around um, a series of questions that you cannot ask right and and so again kind of you know she fa failing that first test of of cult of culthood and then gorzinski brings us back again and says Eve's second test for cult membership was this quote is the leader replaceable or does it all fall apart of course, our last ep our last free episode is all about how the leader is not replaceable. Um, Sam Altman is not replaceable. You tried to replace Sam Altman, and you are the one that's going to have uh, the buckshot backfire in your face. You know, it's so crazy that they're just chanting, "You will not replace him." You know, now that's now that's the big uh, now that's the big fucking chant. <laughs> i didn't even make that connection <laughs> that is good that that's all but that is the case as well it is these it is clearly cults of personality you know in, in um in, in getting ready to do our episode last week on uh on the open ai debacle i, I definitely listened to uh in living colors cult of personality a few times just to get in the right headspace um for that episode mm -hmm. but th this is like 
this is just outright cult uh, cult behavior, right? That like the leader is not replaceable. It falls apart if the leader is gone. Um, and in fact, we will rally around the leader. All 727 of us will write, will sign a letter, <laughs> you know, denouncing the non-believers um, and, and uh, pledging our... Uh, our, our, our fealty to Sam Altman, you know, it's fascinating to, you know, she's really kind of bringing us through this. Like, you know, these are, these are, these are doomsday cults. These are millenarian, uh, sex, you know, they are, um, at once, uh, amanitizing and worshiping the eschaton. Um, and it's absolutely fucking insane um, that that is not just a cute little framing for understanding the um, now you know uh, eighty year history of AI research, but is I think proven to be more and more the correct framing for understanding this long history, not just where we are now, but how we got to where we are, um, and and you know. The, the her this is really one of the first focused pieces I've read that pulls this out in a in a contemporary time period there's of course other ones I mean we've talked about them right like I love um, the essay by uh, Joel Dienerstein that we've talked about before um, called technology and its discontents on the verge of the posthuman which talks about technology as the American theology um, you know it, it, of course David Noble's work here on um, the religion of technology you know um, uh, Gorzinski also cites work by other historians like David Nye, who wrote American Technological Sublime, which again kind of links this idea of the, the kind of, of the manifest destiny with a kind of technological sublime um, that people thought they saw. You know, people people saw God uh, in 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 the railroads. You know, um, they saw a kind of um, American. Um, you know, th they saw that America was the chosen land um, through seeing the railroads crossing the landscape, you know, these kind of things. So, so other people have, of course, made this analysis, but I do think Gorzinski's piece is one of the first I've, I've seen that really focuses in on the history of AI in particular and, and really kind of draws this thread out um, all the way through to the contemporary period. It's, it's really... Um, quite excellent in, in that regard. And I think quite compelling because it's, it's, it's correct. Uh, it's not only a well done argument and it is, it is a very well done essay, um, very provocative. Uh, but I think it's well done because it, it's, it's a, it's a correct analysis. And yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, as she writes, you know, the issue is that high technology shares all the hallmarks of millenarian, of a millenarian cult. And the breathless evangelicism about the power and opportunity of AI is indistinguishable from cult recruitment. Moreover, that, that its cultism meshes perfectly with the American evangelical far right. Technologists believe they are creating a revolution when in reality they are playing right into the hands of a manipulative mainstream political force. We saw it in 2016 and we learned nothing from that lesson. And she goes on to say as well um, that 
Quote, every savior myth must also create an event that proves that salvation has arrived. We shouldn't be surprised that they've simply reinvented revelations. Silicon Valley hasn't produced a truly new idea in decades. I think that that's a, a, a kind of perfect ending um, on, on this essay and on our discussion of it right there, right? That we shouldn't be surprised to see a, a lukewarm, um, microwaved version of Revelations um, because that's what Silicon Valley is best at, right? Like um, taking things and repackaging them. Content might be, might not be new, but Hey, look at this shiny package that we put it in. Ain't that, ain't that interesting? That's worth a few billion. It's amazing. amazing. Well, then let's leave it there. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you. Uh, you can find us at patreon.com slash thismachinekills for additional premium episodes every single week. Lots of great stuff over there. Um, we'll have a link to uh, Emily Grozinski's es- uh, essay in the episode description. Um, I'll also throw a link to that um, essay you mentioned by Morozov, The Taming of Tech Criticism. I haven't read that one in, I don't know, maybe since it came out in 2015. That might be due for a reread for me. Um, mm-hmm. I, I remember that one being spit in some hot fire. Uh, so <laughs> with all that said, we will catch you next time. Later. Adios. Adios. Yo, 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 yo,